All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup edition of bell curve you got mike and miles today just just two lads hold it down two of us just the two of us getting cozy on a nice thursday afternoon fireside (laughs) chat little little fireside chat yeah just picture by fire warm warm mug of cocoa it is the first couple weeks of fall which is which is my favorite season um we thought we'd mix it up here a little bit and actually not really discuss any of the news that's been gone on this week. It's been a relatively slow week. The only thing that's really happening on the news front is the FTX trial and saga. And I don't know. I'm I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed with the uh, the constant deluge of of little facts there. And I think the the CT coverage of it has been basically a historic low even for crypto twitter <laughs> it's been it's been bad so we, we could just skip that and yeah. instead if, you, if you're if you're also sick of that just like just like we are i think maybe um we can zoom out and actually have a debate about just a more of a debate sort of episode where you know one of the topics that i think is the the topic du jour in in crypto right now at least in ethereum land and, and i think in cosmos land as well is uh, enshrinement enshrining things and I think this has been under the radar, something that's being discussed more and more back at ECC in July. If you went, Vitalik actually spoke um, a couple of times about the trend of enshrining coming back. He just recently wrote a blog post talking about, should we be okay with enshrining more things within Ethereum? And you know, we talked about this in a little bit in last week's roundup too. So uh, you know, bear with me here if this is repetitive for you. But it was a very instructive post kind of on the, the original philosophy of Ethereum of not enshrining things, not putting things within the protocol, similar to the Unix philosophy, and instead pushing complexity out to the edges. He actually walked through the history of the many attempts to enshrine account abstraction, going all the way back to 2015 or 2016 to demonstrate how difficult it is actually to enshrine things in the protocol, even if you can decide as a community that this makes sense. And we can get into some of the pros and cons of enshrining and why it makes sense and why it doesn't make sense. But uh, Miles, you actually have a great analogy, I think, for for how to think about this. And I've increasingly started to think that when people talk about enshrinement, it's sort of ships passing in the night and people are using these very different arguments. So you have have this great framework. I'll just tee it right up to you if you want to give the folks the two ways how you think about it yeah absolutely and i think like the big question i'm trying to you know poke at here is really around does credible neutrality which is really what has been the optimized for at this point you know mean letting everything go to the private market um and i guess the way i'm you know i've I've observed that there's two very different ways of of thinking about this topic um and although they kind of get to the same place and one is okay let's you think about Ethereum or any blockchain, like as a, you know, should be basically treated like a, a government treats its, you know, its, its country. Um, and, you know, from that perspective, you could argue for, if you're a proponent of enshrinement, um, Hey, it's not great to let everything go to the private market. Um, there are 
certain services that lead to natural monopolies. And if you were to let the private market, you know, completely capture something like utilities, uh, that would not be healthy, you know, for the underlying ecosystem. Right. And so maybe Ethereum should be, you know, selectively, uh, pick a few areas, uh, that it believes it should regulate or, or even nationalize at some point, um, you know, for, for the greater health of the ecosystem. Um, and, you know, I think the pushback here has been like, well, that sounds like communism to me or nationalizing, you know, businesses or like what's, what sort of precedent does that set? You know, that's not healthy, right. For, for, for attracting future entrepreneurs. Um, I think that pushback's like totally valid as well. Um, then there's a very, you know, opposite end of the spectrum, uh, way of looking at this, which is to think about, you know, Ethereum more like operating systems. Um, and, you know, I think we've seen with Apple and Microsoft. I mean, these big operating systems did bundle many first party apps into their system. Right. So these are like things like browser or like the calendar or even, or even like, you know, iMessaging with Apple. Um, and I think, you know, this, and when you say first party apps there, Miles, just to underscore, that would be like yeah. if windows or Microsoft designed the operating yeah. system windows, then they would also create like outlook things like that, the right. basic exactly. services. Microsoft Office, right? Um, or, you know, Apple iMessage, right? And I think that this is, uh, it, uh, to some degree, to protect their users, again, because like relinquishing this control to the private market could lead to worse user experiences, but it also is effective in deterring competition. Um, and of course, like Microsoft went through all that antitrust stuff because of it. So they definitely took it to the, to the nth degree uh, of bundling things. Um, but I think, you know, whether you're looking at it like an operating system or, or a government, you know, I think that that is the, the big question is like, you know, do, does like, do we, can we retain this value prop of credible neutrality, um, that attracts entrepreneurs and, and, you know, reduces platform risk. It's not something they need to think about while also, you know, not letting everything go to the private market. Um, are there things that we can enshrine? That's the word we're using, but really it's kind of like building a first party app in my eyes um, that makes the rest of the ecosystem net better um, and still, you know, leaves plenty of ample room for, for the, for third parties to come and innovate and, and build, you know, and drive value. Um, so you're not driving away entrepreneurs, but you're also, you know, giving yourself a little bit of a competitive moat um, under the guise of also protecting users. Um, and so, you know, from that perspective, I could think it's, it's interesting. We haven't seen, you know, more enshrinement, right? I think like we're coming out a pretty extreme degree of like, you know, credible neutrality optimization by not doing any of this. Right. Um, but now people are starting to question it that as the private market, you know, winners have started to emerge and saying, okay, maybe this isn't so healthy for the rest of the underlying ecosystem, you know, whether that is Lido today or Eigenlayer, you know, tomorrow. Um, if there are things that are super close to the metal, like, should we be pulling more value back, you know, first of all, into the chain, more control into the chain? Um, and if we do that, does that actually deter you know future entrepreneurs from coming and building third-party apps which we absolutely you know that's our main value prop right we're selling block space for for applications um so that's kind of the way i'm thinking about it it's two very different views um and i think there's like valid pushback and and support you know based off of which which angle you're more coming from so 
I I really like that way of thinking about it. The and but I actually would poke at you and maybe challenge the idea that those are very different. I think the uniting principle is good user experience. So good user experience from the per- perspective of a citizen in your first example of a country nationalizing like a banking system or utilities or something like that or good exp- good user experience from the perspective of using an operating system. So from the perspective of Windows like one thing that everyone is going to do, right, is try to use email. So it would make sense to, like, look, maybe this isn't the thing that we take our rake on and make a bunch of money from. It's more important to us that everyone has this basic service. It's very safe. You aren't getting viruses transmitted to you. It's not buggy, and it just works because if that basic utilities work, utility works, then it's going to lead to all of these other profitable activities down the road. Same, same thing with a, with a country, actually. There And this is where there's a little bit of nuance between regulation and nationalization. So net, like there's sort of like a couple things that countries do, which is provide free goods and services. They're not really free. You get taxed for them. But uh, that really, really actual public goods, right? Like, like building roads, uh, the post office, thing, things like that. Um, then there is then there's regulation, which is to say, look, in, in your example of utilities, if we just let there are, there are just the the natural market dynamic of a utility is that there's a natural monopoly there. So what we don't want is for people, whoever becomes the one supplier of power in a big urban area like New York to just be able to gouge everyone and charge them so much that they're maximizing their profit. But, you know, 10% of the city is without power or basic goods and services. We just don't think that that's a good thing. We're going to improve the basic user experience of people who live in this in this area and and just not allow them to do that. And then that actually should be like a net good and pay dividends back for people who create businesses in those areas and all those other things. Uh, nationalization would would be an example of like a, a government that wants more control over its financial system and takes the banks under their wing. Or in an extreme example, if your financial system blows up and the government has to come in and save parts of the financial system like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So we've actually sort of right. done that to a degree in the US. And that's probably, that is sort of, to your point, how I was thinking about it before. I do think the middle ground here is some form of regulation. And I think even going back to season two of Bell Curve with, did a great episode with Larry, did one with Hasu as well, which provided this framework that I think is pretty accurate, which is the governance should fit how close you are to the metal. So like Ethereum governance, super, super decentralized. One level up is probably Lido. And that should be, because it's so close to the metal, it should be almost as flat and decentralized as Ethereum itself. Now, I guess the question that we're really getting at here and the crux of it is, is like what is so close to the metal that it actually should just be directly controlled by Ethereum? And that is what I have yeah. less of a solid answer for. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that is a super important nuance. Like if you can create elegant, you know, regulation that doesn't need constant governance, like that's very different than operating what would otherwise be a full application, right? And being opinionated and saying, this is the only version of this that you can use. Um, And I would make this like slight differentiation where, you know, you have regulation with utilities, which keeps their, you know, restricts there from being like one electricity provider that, you know, the entire country uses, right? Um, and so you have like a variety of them and they're regional and that's, that's healthy, right? Um, but, you know, if you're like using Microsoft and you're using Microsoft Office, that's literally like, you know, you've got this one choice, this is what you're going to use. Um, obviously, it's more browser-like based ones now today, but but that's essentially 
the line here. Um, and yeah, with something like Lido, it's, it's a question of sure it can be like as flat as absolutely possible. Um, you know, if even without any sort of enshrinement and that's what they're going for. Right. Um, but I think then you still, the concerns are coming from, okay, that's still like one electricity provider that still is providing, you know, powering the entire country. Right. And they still have that ability to, to enforce pricing, you know, price gauging and like uh, gouging and like, you know, unhealthy things. Right. Um, and so with the LSM, the liquid staking module that, that we talked about, um, you know, it's first of all possible um, in Cosmos because uh, it Cosmos has governance, first of all, and it also has delegated proof of stake. Um, and so I think that that's the next question is, okay, if you want to go for this middle ground or frankly, the national nationalization like ground or like the first party, you know, whatever like perspective you're thinking about it from, what are the downstream implications of that for Ethereum? Um, and if you do add something like any kind of formal governance um, or you know delegated proof of stake, like what are the trade-offs with that? Um, does that start to you know potentially pick away at this ultrasound money sort of the value prop, right? Like the more complexity there is and and you know control there is in the protocol, the less of like a money meme you know Ethereum becomes, right? Um, and I think it's always been trying to strike that middle ground where it can, you know, compete with Bitcoin as a, as a money, but also be this operating system. Um, and I think we're now getting to the point where that actually hits like a serious tension um, where, you know, if you are going to try to compete with Bitcoin, then, you you know, you're going to have to make trade-offs like sacrifice, like relinquishing that control of the private market completely. Or you say like, you know, at the end of the day, I think we can still, this can still be money with there being some form of governance or control. Um, and yeah, no, I think it will be interesting to see where, where it ends up playing out. Um, I have a hard time seeing Ethereum implement token governance in any form, frankly. Um, me, me too. And so, uh, you know, I think that anything that requires that is, is a bit out of the equation. I think that it seems like delegated proof of stake is becoming a little bit more of a viable option, uh, or at least I've seen it. You know, I've seen it thrown out there in a couple of the solutions that are being being proposed here. Um, and so, yeah, I think some of that is also worth keeping in mind here. Is like if you do decide to, you know, tackle the Lido problem, what other problems might you introduce, right? Um, that that could potentially undermine like the objectives. Yeah, I think that. That fundamental tension is the the one that I think about too, which is the trade-off with enshrinement is complexity. The more complexity you take on, you know, the the cost of that is you need you need governance. You need a way to manage all of that complexity. One of the things that I think has been strongest for Ethereum and, and Bitcoin as well for its com commodity moneyness, whatever you, however you want to describe it is the fact that there there isn't this it's not like a company it's not like there are shareholders that can vote and it's just this thing that gets sort of decentral that gets coordinated around which looks very commodity like i think the more that you bring within the protocol the more complexity you ask it to absorb eventually if it's doing enough people are going to start to be like all right who is making these like many decisions are being made now i understand this who is making these decisions and what is the process and I, I do think there are guys like I've heard John Adler 
used the exact metaphor of regulation in the past. And one one soft, you know, it doesn't often get thought of like this, but you could think of the EIP process as a part of one component of regulation in a way. They're framed as improvements, but they are things that, you know, the the clients will have to implement and gets brought into the protocol. So I, I think it's worth considering and formalizing more thoughts about how regulation you know, regulation looks in in a crypto and in an L1 sort of environment. But then it is worth worth looking at how governance is going to look and this trade-off between the more human decision that's around it, the more it's subject to change, yeah, the less it looks like a commodity. And to the Bitcoiners' credit, they saw this coming from light years out. These debates were had a long time ago in 2012, 2013, and they saw a lot of this complexity coming down the road and they said, I don't want to deal with that. We're not going to deal with that. And I, I'm a little, I mean, I'm a little biased. I would have preferred to have this problem rather than Bitcoin's problem. Oh right? yeah, me too. Yeah. At least there's things happening. Um, but <laughs> yeah. now you have to kind of accept that, you know, the realities of those, of those trade-offs and like, maybe just to give you some, like one idea of like how, like regulation that isn't opinionated at, you know, in terms of like impacting the apps could look is, you know, you can like the liquid staking module, they could add the ability to basically natively mint some sort of uh, delegation specific LST. So this is like an, an NFT, right? Um, and from there, you can then take that NFT and give it to one of these third party liquid staking providers who pool it. But the regulation is that, you know, you cannot mint like unlimited LSTs with one um, uh validator unless they uh, continually increase their their minimum bond right uh that mitigates the principal agent problem so you're saying okay we're not gonna this this like reduces the risk that all of the stake gets delegated and minted with one validator that can then you know basically rug the protocol but we're also not going to like so we have a healthy like distribution of stake at the delegation level but then we're going to let the private market handle you know how to pool those those NFTs in a way that like keeps them brings them back to fungibility, right? Um, or with Eigenlayer, you could make the protocol aware of basically how much of the network stake has been restaked and cap that, right? So then maybe only like if the network now knows that you have you're restaking, you know, to an AVS or something else, it can say, okay, out of the entire Ethereum stake, X percent is restaked. We want to cap that at like 20, 25%. Um, now the bloat that this would add to governance is that you'd have to be like constantly reevaluating all these parameters and you would have to be, you know, basically doing a hard fork or a soft fork, like an EIP for every single one of these updates, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say like, oh, we got comfortable with the liquid staking cap at, you know, 20 or the minimum self bond at, you know, X parameter, right? Well, what if we want to bump that up a little bit? Right now, so you, regardless of what you do and like whether you nationalize it or not, you you are adding like governance bloat. Um, but is that you know worth it in order to make this like or the benefits of a, a healthier ecosystem? So we could end this endless debate. Um, you know, what does that actually look like? And I think that that's maybe the one thing missing. I think from these like Lido debates is okay. 
can we all agree, first of all, that like social shaming is, is not going to work here. And so if you really want to think about this in like a, a practical way, it has to be something at the, at the protocol level. Um, I don't hear anybody really talking about those downstream implications of, of governance bloat or of, of, you know, delegated proof of stake. Um, we've heard mainly just like, you know, social pressure and now we have a vampire attack, but you know, any, anything at the in protocol like level, I think has, has yet to be like really, really explored. Yeah. The, I think this is where we we've talked a little bit about this. This is, and this person's been referenced on the show. I don't know who Gwart is, but what a joy. What a joy to <laughs> get brought to CT. Oh. Oh, very, someone drew like this Venn diagram of people that are smart and people that are funny to try to identify who it was. And it's clearly someone who's in the know. Um, but they've got a good sense of humor as well. But that is where this kind of meme around the unalignment police because it just rubs you the wrong way. You know, I, yeah. I, I've been on the show saying I, I think it's, I, I genuinely think it's very well intended. But I do think it is always going to rub people the wrong way. This yeah. like, kind of the dynamic of social shaming is just. Or it just reflects a, a disconnect, um, you know, between, I guess, whatever like that, you know, those those values are and what they believe like Ethereum users will do and and what's actually happening on the ground. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's just kind of pointless to 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 keep like, you know, yelling into the void really from, from that side, uh, when, when you can see like in the data, what the users, you know, what their like social layer is. Right. And I think that was, that was, that was the Gort bomb last night. That was great. I, I, I agree, but I, but I also think maybe to take the other side of it just for a second, I, the other side of this would be that, you know, for many years, there was really no reason to use Ethereum unless you really believed in this stuff. Like I, mm -hmm. I do think Ethereum is here today because of those people that believed in those values. So I can see if you're one of those people who just deeply, deeply cares about it. And I, I do care about these things too. I would just be like, come on guys, like this is this is what we're built off here, yeah. right? The success of the protocol is be responsible. Be yeah. And one one thing I've been thinking about a lot is this people love probably because this whole space started with Bitcoin, which was explicitly out to be a form of money. And now there's this ultrasound money meme in Ethereum. I, my personal my personal thought is that it looks more like a, an, a commodity like oil or something like that than, than a more traditional money. But I do think that the question is, if in the, word, in the ways of money, is how do you get people to use this stuff and really believe that it's money? You don't have the, the luxury of a government of just, you have a mon monopoly on violence and and you you get to force people to to use it and force people to pay their taxes in it and it seems like the organic answer that crypto has landed on is to basically form a religion it, like a commodity type money which is enforced by religion and i'm increasingly starting to see the l1s through that lens because you know I, not, like there are people that have been crypto for in crypto for much longer time than me, but I've been in it for six years now. And I, you know what I go through the, I went through the same process that many people do when they first get into this space. Oh, it's so tribal. It's not going to be this tribal forever. You know, it's going to get less and less tribal. And that's just not what I'm seeing. I think it's, if anything, every year that I'm in this space, it gets more tribal. It gets, it gets worse, I think. Yeah. And it's, mm -hmm. and you know, something, the other thing I hear people say sometimes is, you know, that's just on crypto Twitter. That, that's not really what it's like between builders. It's like, kind of, but 
kind of not actually like there are some debt like good friends in, of mine in the space who i know i just have to be a little bit like yeah I'm, I'm in this camp or like no i'm actually i'm really in this camp and and yeah it's it's just as someone who you know i i look at this space from a media standpoint a lot and yeah you, you ha- i think you just have to acknowledge that there are these i mean even just look at how how separate of a camp bitcoin is in these days it did not used to be like that even two or three years ago and now it's like might as well be a different industry might as well be an entirely different industry. So I don't know. I, I've increasingly sort of started to look at these things. Like I probably think the tribalism is here to stay. And I think that its evolutionary purpose, so to speak, is what Ethereum alignment is getting at, which is the enforcement mechanism for using these forms of commodity money is a religious like devotion uh, to an adhered set of values. So if I had to guess, I think that's actually more of the, I don't know if that permanently, but it's more moving in that direction. It seems like. Yeah, I mean, I guess my perspective on this is is more coming at the angle of okay, what is the most scalable way to make Ethereum, you know, money? I think it's by making it like the best possible operating system to build on, and in order to you know interact with this operating system, you need Ethereum, right? Um, and so. If that's, I think that to me is kind of how this actually, you know, scales long-term rather than I think where we get in trouble is when you start to question how it's being used. Right. Um, and that's what, that's what's starting to happen here. I mean, at the end of the day, all activity, you know, is, is good for Ethereum's moneyness. Right. Um, and I think the second you start to get super too opinionated about how it should be used and whatnot, then you start, you know, putting people, you know, pushing people out, right. That, that don't want you to like have opinions on this, you know, operating system. If credible neutrality is kind of like, you know, your, your value prop. Um, yeah. And Bitcoin's interesting because Bitcoin in some ways has like, you know, has cut itself off from the rest of crypto and, and it's taken tribalism way too far and taken its, you know, opinionation way too far. But then there's also like a massive class of holders that are, you know, basically treating this like a macro asset. Like, I don't think Paul Tudor Jones gives a shit about like Bitcoins, you know, like the, the debates on Twitter and like the block size wars and stuff like that, except in the context of like, does this make this a better macro asset that like, you know, the reason I'm betting on. Right. And so in that sense, it, it, it is interesting how that played out, but Ethereum, I think is, is very, very different. Um, and Ethereum's bet is, you know, based off of like people actually using it for applications. And so they need to be even more careful about being opinionated about, you know, around how people use this. Right. Um, because if like that, that will deter that activity. Yeah. On a long enough time horizon, I think they're, like it, it's not surprising to me that the Paul Tudor Joneses of the world are more interested in things like Bitcoin than Ethereum. I'm sure. I'm just speculating. He just talks publicly about it because I I feel like Paul Tudor Jones is the type of investor who is money on bonds, commodities, a, a much more yeah. traditional macro sort of guy, and, and Bitcoin just so neatly fits within that story. And that's what I think Bitcoin basically needs to succeed at this point. It's cut itself off from the rest of crypto, and its success will be determined by you know, big institutional buyers buying into this store of, you know, digital gold store value type narrative. I think Ethereum has a totally different path and, and way of success. And 
it probably does look more like the sort of reserve asset of crypto economies, I would say. And I think that the sort of investor that it will appeal to look more VC-ish in nature, not not exactly, but but more VC-ish in in nature. This is a little bit of a weird spot because I, I, I do think of Ethereum as a commodity. I don't think Ethereum will appeal as much to traditional commodity type investors because it's so tech platform in nature. But at the same time, it's hard for me to really just see VCs just buying and holding ETH either. They invest, they're equity investors. It's an interesting spot. Yeah, I think you could treat it more like an index on all the applications built on top, right? And and that, that's kind of, I think, the mindset, but it's definitely more of an equity growth mindset, right? Um, and I think that that's really where, where we're going. And it's, I could not agree more. That's why it has a very different, you know, class of like stakeholders and investors and, and frankly, way more from the VC side um, because you're, you know, whether you're holding Ethereum or you're like just working in the Ethereum space for the applications and trying to identify the big winners, um, you know, that's a very different mindset to your, to your point. Um, so, yeah. so one sort of related, but a little bit, a little bit of an orthogonal point here that, that we, we got, I, we have a buddy uh, who's just making me think about this and he is think without you know protecting the names of the innocent here but he's thinking about launching a a crypto game and or it's a game that has crypto on the back end so it's a cool game too built like a little bit of an mvp messed around with it and his idea was basically to just abstract away all of the crypto nature of it um so you, you as a user basically wouldn't even know that you're using crypto and i could be wrong but i I actually wouldn't do that. I would lean more into the, I would look at your audience as people who have crypto and want to spend like their ETH specifically. That that was my, I'd, I'd be curious what you would think about this, especially with you in an in investing seat. But I was like, I would kind of think of your target market as people that have Ethereum and want to use it to do fun things that will promote Ethereum and like people can spend their ETH on. Um, yeah. This is not right. a, this is not probably a permanent state of it, but I think there is a very large market out there. FriendTech is a really good example of this. FriendTech clearly, they, they, they did not take the approach of let's build a social app where crypto is totally abstracted and no one knows. I actually think that that is probably right in the very long term, but I think that messes with you as a crypto entrepreneur. I don't think that, I think FriendTech had the right playbook here. They're like, my market is people that own ETH and they want to do cool shit with their ETH. And a cool thing that you can do is take some of your ETH and use it to bet on friends in the social app. And I think that, and to, you know, I've, I've pushed back a little bit on this whole ETH ultrasound money meme, but you know, people do, I think, I, and I've, I wonder of this because oftentimes you hear like, oh, it's a better UX to use USDC. And that's what is being talked about over in Cosmos. I'm kind of like, I don't know about that. I'm, I actually wonder if there should have been more of a leaning into Adam and promote because the, the flywheel that ends up kicking in that ethereum has just done so well on is cycle starts people hold ETH, ETH goes up 20x every one of those holders gets much more wealthy which a makes you more predisposed to the ecosystem kind of unites everyone's incentives b some of those profits that capital gets rolled into new businesses that in in turn make ETH more valuable now there's reflexive down cycle of that on, on the other side but that is a powerful flywheel, and I'd just be curious what you what you think about that whole. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna point out Frontech too because yeah. I think you know if you were like 
there would have been many founders that that look at that and say, "This is I'm building for the masses with this with this app." Um, obviously, we like you, the masses use USD or USD like mm. predominantly. Why the hell would we make them go buy this Ethereum? But I think you kind of to your point, like first of all, you're probably overestimating the amount of like mainstream people that would be your over like an early adopters. Sorry. And you're underestimating like the virality benefits that you get around, you know, even something as simple as, you know, using ETH as kind of like the main currency in there. Um, Now, at the same time, like you definitely don't want to, you know, bar yourself or like add any sort of friction or UX to people that that may not be, you know, have have it like ETH right away. Right. And so if I don't necessarily like, I, I do agree with all those points. I think that, you know, if you can add additional optionality to some of these apps, then, you know, that's great too. I mean, it's all just going to get swapped back to ETH anyways. But yeah, I think this kind of plays into this idea of, you know, alignment as a GTM um, hack, if that makes sense. Um, and I think that we see that to varying degrees, whether it's, you know, a roll-up framework that wants to be like the most ETH aligned roll-up framework. Um, you know, we're going to, despite like the additional costs, like we're going to use it for DA and settlement, right? And we're going to get all like the, the political figures to come out and support our, our framework as like the one that's most aligned with our values. Um, and then, you know, we're going to have like ETH be the gas token rather than, you know, using like, for example, OP or ARB as the gas token. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think we will get to this, this challenge of like, um, you know, it, it actually happens every cycle where, you know, you, you can risk by, by putting too big of a, like early focus on, on kind of like the bigger picture of the mass market and not just, if you want to be like, I'm not just building for crypto natives, right. Um, then you risk building for nobody. Um, but at the same time, you know, I don't necessarily like support projects where like the biggest version of it is is really just a degen tool that like is only appealing to crypto native folks today um and so yeah i think i think it gets into some themes around like you know using speculation as a tool using like you know eth alignment as a tool um and it will be very interesting to see just where these you know how successful these these are i i agree i kind of agree i mostly agree but I would say in the beginning, in the very, again, it all comes down to sequencing, right? And I, I think eventually you need to be building with a product roadmap towards the future where you do not have frictions for people that don't already own ETH or Solana or, or Atom or whatever. But I don't think you should, I think you should be optimizing for those users in the beginning. And you know what I mean? And one of the things that I've been thinking about, because it actually is relevant to this guy's app our friend that he's developing, <laughs> yeah. but it's relevant to friend tech too. One of the, one of the superpowers of, or one of the very unique things about building for people that own a lot of ETH is that they aren't subject to the same restrictions in payments that a regular user would be like, it's much easier, not necessarily on ETH, but on rollups or like once we solve or move past some of the gas fees, like it's just way easier to do payments like probably 10 to 100 times easier to do payments for things in app, in game, micro things like that. And Frontex are really interesting. Like Frontex actually a great example of an app. 
And by the way, I say this with like, I'm not really sure I love the idea of being able to bet on your friends, but just what they've done, I, I don't think you could do that if everyone is just hooked up to bank accounts. I, I just think the the payments back on the loan of that would be uh, a, almost a non-starter. So I just think that probably is a superpower, something that's very differentiated that a crypto user has is this really lack of restrictions around payment. Yeah, I think that's fair when you don't, uh, necessarily have to like go back into another, uh, fiat currency to close the loop, um, right? you know, or, or even just start the loop. Right. Um, no, I think that's, I think that's totally fair. Uh, that said again, like how many people are, are willing just to never close that loop and just, you know, continue accumulating ETH. Like, I think that's the risk you take on, but it's, you know, a, a it's a much easier problem to like basically get that early adoption and then open up the possibilities, like open up more options later than it is to like, you know, ignore that this like early adopter market and, you know, find yourself in a situation with no PMF and like having to figure things out later. Um, yeah. So I, I think, I think it really does like come down to sequencing. Um, and yeah, I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, how big do you think that market is just out of curiosity? Like, I, and when I say that market, you know, how, how, how many monthly active users do you think there are in something like Uniswap, which is, which is probably the best proxy that you have for relatively active on-chain people today? Yeah. So if friend tech's at like 15,000 right now of Uniswap, uh, I would put it in the, in the tens of thousands, but I'm not, you know, I'm not positive on that could be much, much lower and uh, monthly or daily monthly. I'm not Same sure. Monthly. Daily, yeah. Um, unique users, repeat users. I frankly, it's probably under a hundred thousand. Yeah. I'm looking at, oh wait, this is a little bit out of date, but yeah. Around, and I'm pretty sure I looked this up recently. It's like my, I think it's even lower than friend tech. I think it's like 10,000 yeah. or something like yeah, that. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't shock me. Yeah. So it's a, it's a small market size, but that it seems like that is the, you know, a user isn't a user isn't a user. It's kind of like the users that are still left using on-chain products are very, it's, it, there's not a lot of them, but they're probably relatively high value, I would guess, probably yeah. more than the average user in terms of fees that they're willing to generate, yeah. money that they're willing to spend, highly engaged, pretty valuable users, actually, if you can retain their loyalty, which is, yeah. which is the trick. Right, right. In some ways, they're like extremely loyal because we're still using these crypto right, apps right. like today <laughs> after all the shit that we've gone through. But at the same time, like within crypto, the switching costs are quite low. Um, but I think I think that brand does play a, a huge a huge component in, in that like stickiness even within the crypto native users. Um, so yeah, I think I think that would be interesting. I also think that there's maybe opportunity like at some point to have you know in-platform stable coins that are kind of like white labeled or, or maybe even just show up as USD. But, you know, I think that are like owned by the protocol or by the application so that they can like retain the, you know, the business model off of that um, and then send it back out, you know, convert it over to USDC on the way back out. But yeah, I think, I think that I could totally see basically like a lot of these apps having a toggle between like, do you want an ETH denominated app or a USDC denominated app um, or, or a USD call it and just abstract away whatever stable coin that is. And 
um, yeah, I think that's probably the next step here. All right. I, I do not mean to dunk here at all, but I, first of all, I, I completely agree with that. Now I think, what was the name we were talking about? Bridge, bridge. Yeah, bridge XYZ, yeah, yeah, which is, is a very, this. very, cool, very interesting, very cool example of this. The, oh, give me two seconds. I saw, you might've seen it as well. Someone tweeted out this user experience of what it was like swapping into basically stables around cosmos Oh, and, that was that was Larry. Yeah, um, it was trying to get into the the, the neutron like wrapped steeth pool. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's it's a hop, it's a hop, skip, and a jump uh, to get there. There's a there's some wrapping, there's some bridging, there's some swapping. You know, it could be improved. It could be streamlined. Uh, just to, to yeah, cross the Atlantic yeah. Ocean. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> exactly. There's, I mean, even as someone, even as someone who you know uses these products, I mean. That the amount of people that would be capable of using and fully understanding these products is extremely low. Even of the on-chain people, probably like sub, sub two percent or sub, yeah. something. I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's something. It's something. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Cosmos has a bit of a distribution problem. We're aware. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that highlights it. You know, to varying degrees, like of of how painful it is. But yeah, in general, I think I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, Cosmos, I, I just, I, I'm a huge fan of that ecosystem. I know it feels a little disjointed right now, but I think they're going to, I'm going to get it together. Well, one thing I, I, I would be curious to get your, your opinion on is, you know, while we're talking about you know, ETH and ultrasound money and commodity like money, you know, how, how do you view, I know this is something that we've talked about off air before, but how do you view the idea of issuance and whether or not it's a cost to the network. And I'm going to put a little asterisk around that term, cost to the network. But mm. you know, this is something that gets debated back and forth quite a bit. How should investors think about issuance? Is it different on the L1 level versus on the app level? I mean, I mean how, how do you think about this idea of, of issuance putting on your investor cap? Sure. Um, you know, I think of it as uh, maybe it's a little bit of like a traditional sort of like um, mental model, but I think of, you know, it's just take like an L1, like Ethereum. Um, it's like a marketplace, marketplace for, for block space, right? Um, it has a demand side of applications that want to consume that block space. Um, and in order for that block space to be valuable, it needs a supply side of operators that, you know, basically sign off on the blocks and also ensure that, you know, the more distributed it is essentially the, you know, more secure that the block space is. Right. Um, so that's the product first of all. And then from that, that's how I kind of back into my thinking here. Um, you know, these, your supply side are service providers. They need to be paid in order to, I guess, maintain the, your value prop, right. Which is incredibly neutral, like block space. And so I view it as a cost. Um, like I know this is as this like gets into a lot of. There's another view where like if you're well, you can be a staker. Maybe that's like preferred stock. Um, I think if you view this like very very simply, I mean, there's like three different PNLs. There's a supply side PNL. There's the networks PNL, and then there's applications PNLs, right? Um, and for the network, like the revenue is basically what people are paying to consume the block space. Um, and there's a cost, which is issuance. Um, and then there's two pieces of like, what I consider today to be like, 
I, I don't know, rev share or like uh, basically supply side rev share, which is like the execution fees and MEV, but the network can always pull those back in, right? So thinking like MEV burn, right? That is now improving the marketplace's economics because it has enough leverage over its supply side to say, hey, I know we were giving you that part of the revenue before, but like, we're going to take that back. Um, and the basically the PL for the supply side, right? The supply side's revenue is the network's cost. That's issuance. Supply side's costs are their operating costs, um, right? So that's how I say it. The app, maybe the app side, their revenue is fees paid by users to use the apps. Their cost is like what the pass through costs are to, you know, pay for the block space. Um, and so, you know, like for every dollar that is spent on, on Uniswap, you know, half of that is basically going to Ethereum and half of it's going to the LPs. Like if you're just looking at what people are paying to interact with Uniswap, um, and that's a huge, huge rake. And so that's generally how I think about it. I think, you know, once you get into the application layer, like there, it's, there's, you know, you get, there's some nuances, but in general, I just see this as, okay, if you took away issuance as a cost, then would you be able to like maintain your value prop? No, right. Your supply side would go away. Um, unless maybe you're earning so much revenue, you know, and you're fine passing through those costs and not having any, any other sort of revenue like mechanism. Right. Um, yeah. So I'll stop there. I know we've, I've, I've heard both sides of this many times, but sorry, I just, I can't get past it. I agree. I agree with you. I, I think the... this, is, this is supposed to be a debate, Mike. <laughs> All right, here's what I'll, I'll put. Well, so the a person who originally pushed back on me on this and I didn't, think he was right at the time I actually got a little frustrated but then i sat back and thought i was like ah, damn it he's right is john charbonneau and, and i think he's partially there's a what does it mean to be a cost to the network right i think when you i like the way that you frame things in terms of intersecting p l's between different stakeholders that coordinate economic activity around the network but the network's weirdly not a stakeholder in the same way that again eth is a commodity let's say oil right when there's new oil wells discovered, is it a cost to oil? That that doesn't even make sense as a framing. It's not a cost to oil, but it does have an impact. The additional supply of oil has an impact on the PL for mm. uh, people who are pulling oil out of the ground, so to speak. So sure. it's 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 a semantic note, but I think it is actually a very important semantic note in that yeah, the, the network isn't really a stakeholder. It's what really what you're talking about. And the, the simple, you know, bell curve thing here is like, really what people are asking is, is the price going to go down? Is there, if there are more issuance, is the price going to go down? But it probably is an important distinction to say it is a cost to holders, not necessarily a cost to the network. Mm. Um, now, the, the big difference here being with something like oil, it's not, you know, technically there, there is a group of people that can vote and change the issuance. It's not like there's... That's where, that's where the analogy totally, breaks down totally, a little totally, bit, you know, totally, there's no yeah. oil foundation. There is OPEC, <laughs> there is OPEC, yeah. but it, but, uh, there's, there's no, there's no way that you could actually, there's no real ability to change the supply. So, yeah. but that, that's just, where, yeah, I think that's fair. I just see less, less differentiation between, you know, like the network and ETH, the, the asset, um, you know, I, I think the economics of the network directly impact the asset. Um, and 
if more people, you know, are more and more people are using the demand, like from the demand side is going up, the block space is getting more and more valuable, right? That accrues value to, to the holders, right? Um, and in the opposite degree, if like, you know, way more issuance is going out than revenue is coming in, that should, in a rational market, decrease the price of Ethereum, not because of issuance, right? But because like it's being used less, the economics are like, actual PL has 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 gotten hurt right and this is not me saying that like also that you should have deflationary tokens or that you should have hard supply caps either um i think it's just it's a balance right and there is like you should be striving basically not to be overplaying overpaying your supply side um but you need to think about like the downside trade-offs of let's say uh, we've been talking about like minimum viable issuance. There's been a lot of like talk about that recently. And like, you need to be careful not to try to draw that line at like the bare minimum, you know, issuance for the network to work because that has like downstream implications about, well, maybe that's keeping a couple validators profitable, but you're killing the entire long tail. Right. Which then hurts like the value of the block space because it's no, it's, it's totally centralized. Yeah. I think I'm still undecided about this, but I think even like you use the word revenue for the network. And I feel like that's a confusing term. And even when people talk about something like block space profitability, again, think about the oil analogy. Really what that's saying when the Ethereum block space is profitable is that there is demand. It's, it's an indication that there is more demand to use the block space than there is supply of the block space. It's kind of like in oil, you know, you would not say like, if there's more demand to buy and use the oil, than there is supply of oil. It's slightly different. I get that it's slightly different, just even like by, by the flows of the value, but you wouldn't, you'd see that you wouldn't, it would be very confusing to say like the, the revenue of oil, that just gets in, reflected in the price of oil in the same way, in theory, the more, the more profitable the block space is, the more demand there is for block space, you know, relative to the supply, in theory, the accounting mechanism, which is ether within that block space should go up in value. In practice, right. I think what makes it even more confusing is that the price of ether tends to lead block space. I think block space, you know, profitability or demand, the demand characteristics of block space actually lag the price just based on this. This is how I think money flows into and how bull markets typically kick off, which is that price leads everything. When the price goes up, people start asking why there is a positive narrative that gets attached to the price movement. Uh, the, the, the positive narrative in turn feeds more interest in buyers. Price continues to go up. All that positive flywheel that we talked sure, about before sure. kicks in. VCs start getting involved again. And, and that's basically, and that's well, it. I'll just say this, like did Ethereum, the asset, become more attractive after EIP 1559 was like introduced. And I would say like, yes, quite a mm, lot. Yeah. The revenue is the base fee today, right? Mm -hmm. That is like to that revenue, that base fee, it could have been gone to like some DAO that does public goods funding. We didn't want it like that. That was an option. It's burn just for simplicity's sake. Right. And in the future, Ethereum stakeholders want to do so, they can then include like the MEV portion of that. And that's what's being proposed with like MEV burn. Um, 
again, I would say that this is a, making the asset of Ethereum more attractive, assuming that, you know, demand continues to increase, right? Um, to me, it's a little bit less, I guess, oily and more like we can make decisions that make our product better or worse. If oil can't make its product better or worse. Right. right? But see, that's such a great example of a decision around making it eliminating use, right? Like one, one thing that you could have done, this is what Cosmos does to some extent is to say, Hey, we're getting this revenue. We should invest it. Suddenly that looks very company-like, right? Like then you mm -hmm. bucket this as like a company-like thing, but the Ethereum decision to burn, not, not only the, the base fee, but now eventually potentially the execution layer MEV type rewards mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that just makes it look more like a commodity because it, it isn't this like equity returns type thing. The, I, and I, I would say also, I have a chart. I should actually show it on this podcast. It was showed to me by Urian, Fidelity Boy, um, oh. Fidelity Man, I should say. And he, he, he showed me the like 250 year re returns of cash, yield bearing cash, commodities, gold, equities. Yeah. Equities smokes everything. Yeah. And commodities do all right. Uh, actually, yield bearing cash does extremely well. Mm -hmm. um, and gold. And like precious metals has these sort of spikes like this. Um, and I think if you look at ETH or Bitcoin as this ultrasound money commodity like thing, probably it's just funny. Bitcoin has this hold it forever type thing. You don't really want to hold a commodity forever. That's more of yeah. a trade, right? Like you're making a trade based on this environment of debasement yeah, and, and people moving. It should macro, be sort of a one time yeah. thing, but it should not yeah. be a forever hold. And that is how I kind of view these L1s is like, they're, the price ceiling on commodities is that you don't really want commodities to be expensive because they're used for stuff, right? Eventually, yeah. not that social, like markets can decide commodities, but like, for instance, when oil gets too expensive, like OPEC finally is like, all right, yeah, like, you know, we'll, we'll release a little bit more of this. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, if you, if you're calling something a commodity like money, you're, you're subjecting yourself to those dynamics because yeah, you don't actually want ETH to get too expensive because then everyone gets priced out. Yeah, I've just never really subscribed that hard to the commodity side. Um, I think of it more like, okay, would Ethereum be more attractive as an asset today if it didn't? If it had so much demand that the fees that like flow through to say like execution and MEV, what if that if it was like significant enough that that could sustain their supply side with no issuance? I would say that that is makes Ethereum a more attractive asset, right? Now you have like zero actual cost coming out of like the asset, right? Um, and the price of Ethereum could go up a ton because of that, right? It's and, and you're making lots of your. I think where it gets a little complicated and not perfect is that like you get a piece of that, even more of that revenue if you like decide to stake it just to get the pass through costs. Um, but to me, I think that, you know, I don't think there's going to be like any sort of, you know, we should release more Ethereum because the price is getting too high and it's killing user experience. I think that like you can eventually get that through different like scaling mechanisms. Um, but maybe that is like the, the upside cap in some degree is that as it gets so expensive, you need to find even cheaper and cheaper and cheaper ways to like get the same thing. And maybe now, you know, you're starting to use like, more like Celestia instead for DA because I think that like, is 
Yeah, I think that's right. exactly what it, that's what we're talking about. The, yeah. the two ways of scaling Ethereum, there's basically, in my opinion, two ways of scaling Ethereum. One is to move some of the computation that was happening on ETH off-chain. So that could be in the form of layer twos, that could be in the form of proofs and coprocessors or whatever. But you're taking some of the computation that was happening very expensively on ETH main chain and moving it somewhere else and posting a more minor you know, part to Ethereum. And then there's the part of Ethereum which like actually make, like redesign parts of the execution layer to make it more efficient. So that would be what Monad is doing or the SVM would be a good example of that. And, you know, both, I think both of those things, like they're the same, they're the same market forces acting on the same thing. They, they will be, uh, whether it's, this is, this is a classic commodities thing, what you just described, <laughs> like seeking alternatives, right? Like when one commodity gets too expensive, seek alternatives. Um, so I think there's just this natural... Now that said, I think this is this is a good time period to own these things. Like this is the trade portion of the the layer one asset. I would say. Um, yeah, yeah, right. I think it does get interesting if like you consider your main value prop being like an app for platforms or a platform for apps, and now like the success of your you know base layer token is degrading that UX. Um, you know, there could be like little periods of, right, like what we had before EIP 1599, where it was like almost unusable, right? Yeah, yeah. To, to like interact on Ethereum. And now, okay, we've come back down because we've had like some ways to like maintain good user experience, but still like, you know, get the benefits of Ethereum. And so we'll have revenue go down for a bit until again, like the amount of activity on that like L2 level, you know, gets to the point where it's making Ethereum's price go up a lot again. And maybe like, you know, we'll see if people start using alternatives. Um, yeah, so I think it's a long, if you're playing the long game, which is to maximize the amount of activity happening on Ethereum, you know, I think there's like, it just, I, I think it's a lot of interesting questions there that would maybe point to like, not making decisions in the interest of this being a, you know, a money or a commodity. Um, or maybe it is more like a commodity because you do want to keep it cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. This is something that gets talked about more in the Bitcoin space. But if you go back in the history of money, there are more debt-based commodities, more commodity-based monies. This is where I really do think I, I would personally be in the camp of I don't view something like Bitcoin or Ethereum as a company with a it does have a product, but it's in the same way that like a raw material is a product. It I I, I do view it as something unique that more is more analogous to a, a sort of digital commodity as opposed to the product of a centralized company. And I think, yeah, I've just, that's how I view at least it's really ether Bitcoin. I think Solana, Adam, you know, Sol Adam are like on the, on the verge of that as well. Um, uh, maybe the last thing, just cause it looks like this, this was, this looked like it was gonna be pretty cool for a second. Now it looks like it, I guess you were telling me it might not happen, but the, the stride acquisition by the hub and I guess two. Well, you're you're closer to it than me. You want to just describe? We talked about it a little bit last show, but you want to just describe what that was, why it was potentially interesting, and then we can get to some of the dynamics of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> for those who don't know, Stride is the uh, the leading liquid staking provider in the Cosmos ecosystem, um, and I think roughly seventy percent of its TVL uh, is is in staked Atom, uh, ST Atom today, um, and I think you know they've basically made a couple strategic decisions um, that has already like increased, I would say like uh, its alignment with, with Adam. Um, 
and also like the security of the of the protocol. So Stride first became you know an, uh, a consumer chain of of Atom. So they're an ICS chain, which means they are now you know the Atom validator set is is operating Stride. Um, but they've retained basically the majority of their economics and their governance rights. So mm. before this proposal, you know, it was getting the security of Atom, but it did not have full alignment in, in to some degree. Um, and it, it only got the security of like the, the, I would say like the operating security, not the, it didn't, hadn't mitigated the governance risk piece. Mm. And I think that, you know, if you can just, if you're in this position in Cosmos and you look and see what's happening over in Lido and Ethereum, you can tell that, you know, at a certain point of, of growth, you know, there becomes social scaling issues. If you don't, you know, basically decentralize the, uh, the liquid staking protocol as much as possible. Right. That's what we were talking about at the beginning of the show. Um, and so strides, you know, kind of proposal is based on the fact that, okay, if we merge with the hub, which is the single most decentralized proof of stake, I, I would say, um, a network that also has token, you know, governance, um, then we can basically avoid running into these issues when we get really big. Right. Mm. So this would, yeah. this would make, uh, first of all, this would make, you know, all of the atom holders comfortable with stride, you know, having 70 or 80% of staked Atom, you know, as, as liquid staking tokens, right? If they owned and controlled Stride. Um, this could even make other networks that are, you know, like like Celestia or, or DYDX more comfortable because, okay, the, you know, what was pointed to as a, a governance risk is now, you know, a much larger set of stakeholders, right? It's much harder to attack or do like malicious things through the hub's governance, uh, given its market cap, you know, than it is through the stride governance today. And so the rationale going in was, okay, we can make like very simply the biggest, best version of, of stride. If it is, you know, one in the same with the cosmos hub. Um, and from the hub's perspective, we think this would be attractive because, you know, the hub has kind of been soul searching for, um, I would say, you know, a source of, of value accrual. Um, you know, the hub, unlike Ethereum, doesn't have, you know, a product like block space that everybody is using, right? Uh, the hub is, is, is not like the L1 of, of Cosmos. It's, it's really, you know, its original purpose, which was to be an IBC routing hub, has not accrued very much value at all. Um, and any revenue that they get from being a security provider is, you know, can kind of contingent upon its market cap staying high and its market cap is not going to stay high forever if it continues to not really have any sources of revenue. Right. So that was the rationale going in is that, okay, great. The hub now has like a revenue driver and a real like business associated with it. Um, and stride can basically, you know, avoid these like social scaling issues that come once you get to be a certain size. So that increases the ceiling of strides market cap and it now gives the hub, you know, uh, like something to basically really focus on and kind of like, you know, that starts to build out the vision of how it accrues value in the long term. Um, of course, then you get to like <laughs> the process of actually doing this through decentralized governance, which is uh, typically very difficult. Um, I think there are people on the stride side that were concerned 
mainly had two two big pushbacks. Uh, I would say like there's one pushback that was like, okay, I think Stride has a lot more upside than Adam, um, and that kind of ignores the fact that there'd be like even more upside if they would merge, or maybe they disagree with that, right? And then there's I think a really valid concern, to some degree, is well, do we actually have a worse shot at getting big new networks, you know, like a Celestia because we're like this hub aligned, um, you know, protocol rather than being a, a neutral third party um, with the hub security, like is an ICS enough? And then, so those are the two pushbacks on the stride side. And then the pushback on, you know, from the, the Atom side was, I don't want to mint any Atom. Um, there's only $30 million of, of Atom left in the community pool and strides market cap before it dipped was it was around 75 million and i think it's around like 50 million now um and so you know i think oh yes yes of course, of course it is yeah yeah Yeah, it went, it, went, it went from around 75 cents to around 50 cents, um, which is very interesting. You know, there's a lot of overlap between the two holders. Who knows really what's going on? Um, you know, there's a lot of like, it, it was, it's always hard to tell like what is just kind of, you know, your your crypto Twitter noise versus like what are like the most, you know, the, the, the most important stakeholders think about all of this. Um, and, you know, there's like a lot of, you know, I'd say like, uninformed takes around this is stride like trying to get an exit opportunity um and that makes no sense to me because that, first of all it would have been impossible and second of all they, they they're not looking to exit at like you know whatever it is their current market cap right um this would only be done if everybody can agree that this is gonna you know basically the that's the sum of these two parts is you know larger than like what they would have been uh have had they stayed like independent so yeah it's it's been interesting i mean it's it's definitely different than like the ethereum enshrinement debate but you know there there are some there's some like definitely similarities um and this is so it's not quite the same as like ethereum saying yeah we're gonna acquire lido um but it's not not impossible um like Lido could propose tomorrow that like, you know, <laughs> they would never do this, but Hey, uh, I think the biggest version of Lido is one that is actually owned by Ethereum. Right. And we create this like sub DAO, uh, within like Ethereum's, you know, outside mm. of like Ethereum social consensus. And now you guys don't have to worry about the, you know, self-limiting debate anymore because you guys can control things and that's going to guarantee that we'll get, you know, 80, 90% market share. Uh, and it will make you guys more comfortable. That was kind of like the 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 rationale here. If you had to yeah. draw an analogy, that's definitely imperfect. I agree. So there's sort of just like any M and A transaction, there is sort of a strategic rationale for both standpoints from both the perspective of the Stride community and the Atom community, and then there's the the economic perspective from the Stride mm -hmm. and the Atom community. So I think from from the stride perspective is kind of like just to quickly sum up it's like let's just avoid all that stuff in lido land like we see how that's all playing out we understand that in order to hit them like we're in a market where there's a natural monopoly in order to get to the 80 or 90 percent we're going to have to solve the social scaling yeah. dilemma and this is a pretty good way of sidestepping that 
you know, and presumably capturing 80 to 90% market share will make us, you know, be very good in terms of the appreciation of our token. Right, right. Simply said, decentralization is a growth strategy. Like that is the right. rationale. Which right? is what and makes LSTs so unique and cool. Yes, yeah, su- super, super unique. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree. Um, you know, I think the difference is they are, they surface, they have more supported networks than any other LST out there. I think they have like, they support like, eight or nine different chains right now. And that's just, you know, the nature of Cosmos. Um, and so it's it's a little bit different in that it's not like, you don't know if that same, uh, I guess, decentralization as a growth hack applies outside of Atom, which you'd be merging to. Right. Um, and and then I guess from the Atom perspective, it's like, yeah, this is a this is a uh, revenue stream, but I th- but I think even more than the revenue, the incremental revenue, and the control that it would bring in, I think the soul searching of like what is the roadmap for the hub and how it's going to yeah. value, like this is a critical building block there. So so one thing that I mean my my sort of read on this is um, I I mean just in terms of M and A, I've always been a little bit bearish in terms. Of, this this question crops up every couple of years. When is crypto M and A? Someone makes a prediction. Crypto M&A is going to happen. It's going to happen this year. I've never been particularly excited about it because the valuations are really wonky and there aren't really that many businesses with real moats in this space. Maybe that's part partly because it's a maybe that's partly because of the open source nature, but when you really I think start to look at most businesses, like I think there are like two or three people that I could maybe just hire away here instead of paying 100 million. And that's the other thing. The valuations from founders are just completely unrealistic and untethered for the most part. So yeah, I, the, but, but the, I would say on the moat piece, I would say I would push back a little bit. Um, all right. There's two, two moats that I think, so like I did hear people say like, why don't we just fork stride, you know, from the hub side, like why the hell would we be minting all this atom and it's all open source. We can just fork this thing. Um, and I would argue that would not go well because I think there are, there is a moat around first of all, like talent, human talent, like, there's I, yeah. a team that is really good at building products and like has been laser focused on execution and you know actually like you know direct to retail products there's nobody on the hub side that, that like has any like remotely close to that right um and then there is another i would say like moat somewhat around brand um and a lot of there's a lot of layers to like brand but i think you know um that to me is where I would maybe make the distinction. Um, and then on like the deal structuring side, it's, yeah, it's interesting because you would be like, okay, let's go to like TradFi let's pull in best practices. Um, you know, we should apply like a control premium. We should be looking at this, this and this. And it's like, well, yeah, at the same time, you don't want to pull in too many of those like approaches because then you would have to justify why the market cap is the way it is today. When the P and L suggests that that's like, you know, a hundred X, a hundred X earnings or like something. And, you know, like that would just never happen. Right. So yeah, I think it's still super messy when like the base valuations are not grounded in like a, like the way that TradFi would value it. Right. Um, And then you're trying to slap on all these like, you know, traditional like best practices and you can get yourself in, in hot water if you're like trying to justify a premium that way. Well, I think so obviously TradFi and especially the bigger the deal is, the more laser focused they are in multiples. But I, I've always been a fan of the framework of build versus buy when it comes to valuing businesses is outside of just the like how difficult would it be 
to to build this on my own versus what you've already built. And when you when you decide to buy, there's the there's the multiple price that you're paying, but there's also the execution risk that maybe I just try to build what you guys build, but I just can't, just literally can't do it. Or maybe there's a time to market element of okay, if it took if I maybe I could build this, maybe I could even do it cheaper, but it would take me two years. And where would I be relative to the position of the market in on a two year time frame? And I think that's probably more applicable of a framework to be looking at it uh, yeah. from, from this standpoint. Could, couldn't agree more. Like yeah. in looking at it from an ROI standpoint across like all of those different paths. Um, right. And, you know, the other, the third option there is partner. Right. And I would argue that's where they are today. They've already like partnered. Right. They're already sharing economics. I think 15% mm -hmm. of Stride's revenue goes to the hub. Um, and in return, Stride gets like, you know, the operator set, which makes them more secure. Uh, and I think what was proposed is, hey, this is going really well. Like, you know, I think we could both benefit by, you know, doubling down and going from partnership to to, to merger um, or acquisition. And, yeah. you know, the market disagreed. The market disagreed. Or at least crypto Twitter voices disagreed. And it sounds like, you know, it was allowed enough basically to, to, to pull it back. Um, but yeah, I, I also do have this like, you know, the perpetual M&A is coming to crypto type of deal. Because we do see areas that like make sense for consolidation, right? Um, and you can like lay out a rational case, but then when the, you know, rubber hits the road, it's like, oh, nope, still not there. Not even close. So here's here's what would have, and this, I feel like I, I'm coming off as if I'm criticizing a little bit the, the Cosmos, and that's, that's not what I mean to do here at all. Um, but... I think one thing that at least I am lacking, and maybe it's because I'm not as in the weeds, but I feel like there I'm I'm not seeing the I think if you had a clearer vision of the strategic vision for the hub and where something like Stride fit in, it would be easier to get the community behind something like this, if that makes sense. If it was like so like for you know what I'm for Ethereum, it's like okay, we they Vitalik, you know, the order of operations is, you know, Vitalik writes something. Everyone scurries about to essentially do said thing, um, but but it kind of works, right? Okay, roll-up centric mode roadmap. Roll-ups end up getting built. Now, what's next on the roadmap? We need to make DA cheaper for roadmaps or for roll-ups. So we got proto dank sharding, eventually full dank sharding. Then we know that we got to get a proposer builder separation. It's like there are these things that I know, and so when you have the full strategic vision and where you're going, it makes it easier to say, okay, this is a huge priority. If I get this thing in then it's going to help me get to this thing in the, in the, in the, in the future. Whereas I think that's, what's sort of missing here a little bit. It's like, okay, this is a great source of revenue, but I, I don't see like, where's the full picture? Like, are we going to go acquire more things? And, and, and when you don't have that, suddenly it just becomes a, well, how much does it cost and how much am I immediately going to get out of it instead of, wow, I'm so bought into this future thing. I'm so pumped about it. I cannot wait to get there. Oh, if we got this little piece here, it would get us closer to that vision. Okay, let, let's just get it. The, the cost is a cost. You know what? Exactly. I, it's just a very different. Market. Exactly. It's, you, if you have a roadmap, you can see, like make a decision based off of like, is this going to accelerate the roadmap, and like, are the you know the benefits of that worth the cost? Like, it's it's so much more simple. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I think there's like a lot of challenges. I would say the main ones are uh, around. First of all, there's the Cosmos stack roadmap and their core objectives, and there's the Cosmos hubs 
roadmap and like vision, right? And the, there's a challenge here where the people who are in charge of building, I would say both, right, have to kind of choose which one to optimize for. And then, you know, so, okay, we're going to go bring value back to Adam because we've been focused, you know, on the, the Cosmos stack for a while and Adam suffered. Okay, great. Within Adam, there's very little, like, I mean, there is, there's like no consensus around what that vision is. Um, we, we had Adam 2.0, right? That was like the, at least Shout one out attempt. Sam Hart. Yeah. One attempt at it. Um, you know, it got, it was, it was shot down and now it's kind of like, you know, again, people are, are trying to pick up the pieces and anytime something is put out there, it gets, you know, a ton of pushback from people that, you know, it's almost like people are afraid to get out of this sort of like, like meme stage with, with Adam where it, it's, it's still valuable, but like the second you try to actually do something, it becomes clear that like, okay, maybe we should put a value on what you're trying to do. And maybe that comes down. Um, that's challenging and same, but I could not agree more. Like if there was a grand, if there was at least, you know, not super prescriptive, but like somewhat of a, a an aligned vision for the hub, like, and this decision would be a lot easier and more clear for both sides. Right. Um, so this observation I was listening to, essentially this discussion you and I are having with our, our analysts uh, on zero X research and effort, effort capital, as you know, is big in the cosmos ecosystem. And he made this observation about, it's like, yeah, it's kind of funny that these communities don't feel aligned. It's like, oh, stride holders, atom holders. It's the same people. It's the same people. You know, it, the Venn diagram of Cosmos is basically a circle. It's, it's, it's almost one-to-one. -one. So it's just kind of funny that, that you'd say they, they aren't aligned. And you and I have talked about this a little while ago. We watched, I, I do think this is the benefit of Ethereum in the beginning. It had everyone just got behind this ETH and they rallied behind it. It was also, it was a shelling point, but it was also a source of shared wealth in the same way that equity in a company unites everyone. And when I remember when we saw the rollups leaning in and each one, each rollup had their token, it was like, well, eventually, you know, it's <laughs> not all one thing anymore. You know, they're yeah, going to be distinct yeah. communities. And I think you are starting to see those cracks form in, in Ethereum today, but Cosmos started out with that. So there was Adam, but the Adam never accrued any value. Because it didn't accrue any other value and because there were all these other tokens, there was never one thing for people to rally around. And it's just, it has led to more disjointed action, I think. And I, well, I mean, that's, some... that's like, that's part of the, 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 you know, vision, right? Um, I think there could have been one version of Cosmos where like, you know, the, the vision was to optimize for like Cosmos stack adoption um, and, and, you know, basically treat the hub as like a, a public good of some kind and treat, you know, Adam as a public good, but that's very challenging because, you know, you did raise this ICO. And so like, you do have to return capital, like to the Adam holders at some point, but I think more so than any ecosystem, the tension of like value accrual to that original token, you know, is, is most at odds with like, the vision of cosmos you know uh, of like the applications broadly because the, the more value that goes back to like the atom hub is presumably being taken away from like the app chains themselves and the whole reason you're building in cosmos in the first place is because you want your own app chain um so yeah i think it's 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 difficult it's more difficult to rally the troops per se like in cosmos than any other 
um, any other ecosystem because they're building there in the first place because they wanted more sovereignty than, than Ethereum. They didn't like being like, you know, subject to kind of like the roadmap laid out by Vitalik and maybe, you know, um, yeah, it's kind of in their nature, it. right? I get it. And I think that will be, I think that will be beneficial down the road. I think, again, we've talked about this a lot, but I do think the sequencing generally is going to be launch, probably actually skip main chain these days, probably just launch an app on a rollup. Maybe then you decide you want to be your own OP stack chain, then you probably migrate to Cosmos. But I do think in the meantime, I don't know. I don't know if there's some, yeah, I mean, this is kind of the trade-off, right? Like the full sovereignty, but you lack the unity. And maybe there's an, maybe there's a, an analogy to be made here to the United States itself with the original Articles of Confederation. And it's like, yeah, everyone wanted no central government. And there's like, well, we need something, you know, we need, we need maybe something a little stronger than this. And maybe one, one fix here would be just, I don't know if you could even do this at this point. I, I think the community would probably hate it. Cosmos people, maybe you, maybe you just absolutely hate the suggestion, but why not make the default gas on every Cosmos chain, Adam, just to start? Right. Like that, I feel like that's not even a huge UX sacrifice because I think people want to use Atom anyway. I really think they do. And I I don't actually think people want to use USDC. Like I, I just challenge people who say that because I and I used to be on that train, but I'm not sure it's so obvious anymore. Like, think about the user flow for most people into this space, right? You start on a centralized exchange like Coinbase, then you buy like a little bit of Bitcoin, maybe some ETH. Okay, then you take your ETH on chain. Then you start doing things with it. It, it, you don't like go onto an an exchange, swap your USD for USDC, take that USDC on chain, and then start doing things with your USDC. You start with the thing that you bought on the centralized exchange, and so I don't actually think it's a bad user experience to require the native sure. token for yeah. gas. Uh, I don't think you need to require the native token for gas. I don't think it needs to be Atom though. Um, I guess, so there's one question, like, can Cosmos succeed without, you know, Atom succeeding? Um, it's an interesting question. I think it's, it's still TBD, but I would say, I would point to one thing, like the biggest win Cosmos has had is DYDX adopting its stack, right? No, everybody was cheerleading. When that happened and and frankly cosmos mindshare went up a lot after yes. that happened that's when this whole app chain thesis really started kicking into gear do you think dydx has any interest in making like well this isn't going to work unless we have like adam as our as our gas token like i get it no right and so there's you know for the cosmos stack to win right that in some ways means like value doesn't you can't force value accrual to to atom that said i think everybody does realize like damn it would be really nice to be like rallied around one token right now and like we can see that that's you know a big part of ethereum's success um but i think you're you know like making trade-offs that end up undermining like the reason that you know people want to build on cosmos in the first place that's the risk yeah i i agree i i hear you on that i'm not i'm yeah. not really i'm not really pushing back at all i i don't know it's an interesting question i the immediate answer that came to my mind not having really thought about it is yes 
Adam could survive or Cosmos could survive rather, but you know, maybe it doesn't look like Sam Hart. Right? We'll say this, like, Cosmos is a design philosophy and right. that for the design philosophy for, um, you know, like IBC or, you know, Tenderman yeah. as in yeah, right. that consensus to survive. No, you don't need Adam to succeed, but to succeed in the way that I think most people implicitly mean for it to succeed as an ecosystem I do think you need Adam. I need. I yeah. think you need. Well, let's yeah. think about it this way: like, does OP need to like accrue tons of value, right, for like the OP stack to be successful? Um, I think again, the only way to do that is like through something like the law of chains, right? Um, mm. But how do you justify the law of chains? You have to make like law of chains OP stack rollups first class, right? They have to have like, there has to be like user end user benefits that outweigh that cost. Right. Um, and they're doing that well, they have their own roadmap and that's like kind of reminds me a lot of r really where like the AEZ was trying to go, but the difference is, you know, the AEZ doesn't have like differentiating features like, uh, the mitigate pain points that are as extreme as we see on, you know, roll isolated rollups today. Um, but I think we will see some interesting dynamics there, right? Where like, you know, if you want to use this stack, um, do you have, do you need to pay a tax, right? Um, or like, can you bet on yourself, right? You can bet on your your own app as the shilling point. Um, and so it will be interesting. I, I don't know, how, but I, I just can see similar themes starting to play out with these with these roll up frameworks too where like they're stuck in between, you know, optimizing for like, you know, uh, OP value accrual and then OP stack adoption. Like there's a little, there's always, those, there's always going to be a tension there. Um, in the same way that, you know, optimizing for AEZ and Atom value accrual is a little bit at odds with Cosmos stack adoption. Because to my point earlier, like if you had to use Atom as the gas token, I think DYDX would have said like, well, fuck that, <laughs> you know? Um, and so it's, it's, you know, it's just kind of a, it's, it's I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know that to be the case. And again, I think there's a, I think there's a business. I think Antonio is a really pragmatic founder is my read on him. And again, the way I would think about it is I want to do what my users want to do. And what the, the choice that ETH has made is I think there is a better, I think the business decision for someone building on, on ETH, I mean, it's mandated on ETH, right? But like even like the friend tech example, right? Like you view your, your target market as people that want to spend their ETH. And that's actually a user experience sort of like, it's a way to carve out or target a very engaged user base as opposed to an additional friction, which is how I feel like this is traditionally viewed. You know, if you make someone use your token as gas, it's a friction. Whereas you could look at it as, hey, here's this huge base of people who are like weirdly religious about this thing and like want to see it used. And, you know, like there are all these people that just love to tweet like, oh, I'm using my ETH for this like silly little thing. Um, and I think there is, I think you can make a pretty compelling business business case. Like I've heard Antonio say this before that you should think less about these ecosystems as distribution but i don't know about that i think he's right about right. that well okay maybe maybe this is a little bit unique because 
users that he's trying to bring with him did not pay for gas period in in dydx v3 right it's gasless mm, trading yeah, yeah. right yeah and in dydx v4 they're not going to be paying in dydx for gas fees for trading it's still gasless trading so mm. i would just say that and, and all the collateral is based in usdc it's not like you know so again like i think it just i think cosmos draws that type of of developer right um that cares about about all those things and doesn't, you know, maybe necessarily value like, and I also would maybe say like, yes, I agree with that. Adam's in a bit of a tougher place to like really enforce that. Or like, I just, I just think the friend tech ETH, you know, example, like is, is a little bit stronger, like a point because, you know, people own ETH, like it's very, I wouldn't even say like the majority of crypto does not own, you know, Adam. Um, but I do see your points. Like, like, and I, I think they're stronger on ETH, and they're stronger. Like, the more of like further along you are in in growing those network effects of like, you know, the base asset. Um, yeah, it's always a mix of both. You have to do both. It's it's product and it's distribution. You can't yeah you can't totally, totally pick one or totally pick the other. Uh, you you, you got to do a little bit of both, but. Look at this did end up being a little bit of a debate. And by the way, I, yeah, I really do I love, love Cosmos. And the reason I, I enjoy having these sorts of discussions is like, yeah, I have a, just a, a vested interest in, in seeing all these ecosystems succeed. Yeah, me too. Um, me too. The good ones. Oh, the good ones. The good ones. Yeah. The good ones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we did see, uh, I guess, just the one little newsy thing that was kind of interesting. We did see Paul Tudor Jones say he likes the gold and the Bitcoin this week. He so. likes it again. He likes he it likes again. He likes it again, baby. Let's go. Back. All right. We're so back. So back. No, it is October. <laughs> it is. It is not October. It is October. So, oh, boy. All right, buddy. This was a really fun one. We yeah, should make these debates. This should be a nice little. Nice little feature. Yeah, well, you know, I think so. Every once in a while, once 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 these narratives get a little spicy, we'll get on here, hash it out. Um, I like it. I like it. Yeah. All right.